Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard of Mother Teresa? Yeah, a lot of us, most of us, right? When you think of Mother Teresa, what words pop into your head? What, you know, what, who was she? What was she like? What, what, what stands out about her? Kindness, goodness. Yeah, lots of, you, you know, lots of words could pop into our head, they're all, and they're good words, right? This is somebody who's a, we admire. How many of you thought of the word faith, faith in God? Yeah, you'd think, here's a person of incredible faith because she, um, she gave her life in the service of the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India, and she persevered over decades of ministry there. Well, she died a number of years ago. And uh, after she died, a book was published and included several, several letters that she had uh, sent to her spiritual uh, confessors, her people who supervised her superiors. And uh, the book was a shock because in that, let, in, the, in that book, in those letters, she revealed that uh, for years, she had been tortured, really, by this really deep, heavy, extreme doubt. She wrote things like, where is my faith? Even deep down, right in, there's nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? It pains without ceasing. She wrote, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me. I'm afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. Mother Teresa had faith, but in the midst of her faith, huge, deep, long doubts. She had a long night of the soul, as some have put it. Today, we're going to be talking about having doubts in the midst of faith and about how to respond in faith even when we have doubts. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. We're continuing the, a series that we began uh, three months ago uh, on the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. It's on page 714 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Okay? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth gnashing his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. 
You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father explained, I I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So let me set the scene for you, give you some background. Earlier in in Mark, in the same chapter, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up to this mountaintop. And when, Jesus, when they get up to the top, the, the other nine are left at the bottom, but when, when Jesus and his, and his three disciples go up to the top, Jesus gets changed. He gets transfigured in front of them. He uh, starts glowing with his radiant sort of light. He shines brighter than anything they've ever seen. It's as if, you know, the veil that had kind of covered the glory of God in Christ that, that kind of faded away, and they could see Jesus as he really is, glorious, shining light, the light of the world. And they see him like this, and they're just terrified. And then in the midst of that, Moses and Elijah appear, and they're standing there talking with Jesus. We don't know what they're talking about, but they're standing there talking with Jesus, and, and Peter, James, and John are looking at this and going, they just, I mean, they're, they've, they're, they're just dumbfounded. They don't even know what to say, so they mutter some nonsense. Anyway, Moses and Elijah disappear again. They just blink out of the screen, so to speak. And then a cloud rolls in, and it covers Jesus, and it covers them, and they hear a voice out of the crowd saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then the cloud kind of goes away and uh, the, glor- the, the glorious light radiating out of Jesus kind of fades out and he looks like what they're used to seeing him look like and they start coming down the mountain and as they're coming down, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody what just happened. And uh, they ask him some questions and he answers their question. They just come down the mountain 
So then they get down to the foot of the mountain, and that's where our passage for today picks up. They get down to the foot of the mountain, and they see this large crowd. And in the midst of the crowd are the other nine disciples and the teachers of the law, and they're having an argument back and forth, and the crowd is just kind of watching the argument. They're just watching the show. And Jesus asks the question, what are you arguing with them about? Disciples don't say anything. But a guy steps out of the crowd. He says to them, I brought, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by an evil spirit. And I asked, you know, and this, this evil spirit, he's robbed my son of speech. He throws him into convulsions. He makes him rigid. He does all these terrible, terrible things to him. And I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Jesus hears this father talking about his son. He says, you unbelieving generation, bring the boy to me. So the father brings the son before Jesus. Now, imagine you're that son. Here he is. Here's his boy. He's possessed by a demon. It makes him deaf. It makes him mute. He can't hear and he can't talk. It causes him to, to fall into convulsions. He becomes rigid. He's scared, he's alone, he's terrified, and he can't tell anybody anything about it because he can't speak. He can't hear his father trying to comfort him. He, imagine this boy, what that would have been like for him. He's helpless, he's absolutely helpless. And everyone around him is helpless too. The boy is helpless. His father is helpless. The disciples prove that they're helpless. The teachers of the law are helpless, whether they care or not, but they're helpless. they can't help him either. And then Jesus asks the father, how long has he been like this? And the father tells him from childhood, What Jesus is doing there, he's not looking for information. What he's doing is he's showing compassion to this father. He's allowing this father to open his heart. He's listening to this father pour out his sorrow and his suffering, his brokenness over his son's suffering. And so the father tells him the story. And Jesus listens. And then the father says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. And Jesus says, If you can, everything 
is possible to one who believes. And the father says, Jesus, I do believe. Help me, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think this father makes one of the profound statements in scripture. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Here he is, here's this guy who becomes completely open and honest, transparent before Jesus. His faith, it's trembling, it's imperfect, it's really weak. But he's still willing to declare himself publicly. He recognizes his weaknesses and he pleads for help. That's real faith. To cry out to Jesus, help me, takes real faith. It is an expression of real faith. There's a paradox to faith. All of us, faith is there. We believe, but, it's, but our faith wavers. There's a kind of undertow of doubt in our lives. There are times when our faith seems strong to us, and then the evil and suffering, the realities of life come against us and we find our faith wavering. Right? You've all experienced, I've experienced that, you've experienced that. Every believer believer experiences a tension between belief and unbelief, between faith and, if you will, unfaith. At the same time, So here's the first thing I want you to hear. Having doubts does not mean you have no faith. Having doubts does not mean you have no faith. Father has doubts and he offers the prayer of faith. Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You see, this father, think about this father. He brings his son to Jesus. He has probably tried everything under the sun to find some relief for this boy. Put yourself in the shoes of this father. I have a son and three daughters. Whenever even the smallest thing happens to them that causes them pain, it, it hurts inside for me too. And there have been times in life when my kids have gone through stuff where there's nothing I could do to help them. And I knew there was nothing I could do to help them. And I felt completely helpless. And I would utter all kinds of prayers before God. Lord, only you can help them. Help them. You've, maybe parents, you've, all of us have experienced some of that too. There are things that happen to the people we love, our kids or other people we love. And the pain and the suffering they're experiencing is our pain and suffering too. This is the Father. 
This father has tried everything to try to find help for his son, and nobody's helped. He, brought, he, brings, he hears about Jesus, and something stirs in him. So he brings his son to Jesus. Jesus isn't there physically, but the disciples are there. And he tells them about this boy, and they say, we got this. We can do this. So they say, we're, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take care of this for you. And they say, demon, come out of him. And the demon doesn't come out. Demon, come out of him. And demon doesn't come out. Demon, come out. Demon doesn't come out. The father's watching this. And he's struggling to have faith. And he's watching this, and, and he's seeing that the disciples fail in that faith. Oof, it just drops even more. And his heart just gets more inflamed with pain. And then Jesus says to him, but, but Jesus then shows up, and, and again, he musters whatever faith he has, and he steps out of the crowd. And he says, Father, I brought my, uh, Jesus, teacher, I brought my son to you, and your, to your disciples, and I asked them to drive out this demon. They could not. But if you can help us, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus does something strange. He says, if you can. If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. What's Jesus doing there? This father has this small, small, small flicker of flame still in him. And what Jesus is doing is he's fanning that small flicker of flame into life. He's fanning it into life. The Father cries out, Jesus, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? Get out of this boy. Never come back to him again. The boy is healed. Jesus takes this father's small faith and acts on it. He casts the demon out of the boy. The boy is restored, and the father gets to see that. Now, the crowd eventually goes away. The father goes away with his now healed son rejoicing. I can't imagine what their evening together must have been like. Disciples remain with Jesus. They go into this room. It's, they're by themselves. And the nine at the bottom of the hill turn to Jesus and say, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says to them, this kind can only come out by prayer. So what happened here? The disciples had tried to exercise this demon and they had failed. They'd failed. And Jesus tells them it's because you didn't pray. You didn't pray. What happened? Instead of praying, they just let themselves get into an argument with the teachers of the law. They had tried to cast out. They had cast out demons before Jesus sent them out. Mark chapter 6, he sent them out. And they had, with, uh, with authority to, to 
heal and to cast out demons and to proclaim the gospel and they'd done that and they came back and they, you know, they'd done all that. They'd done it before. But they'd misunderstood what happened when they did it in other times. They get to the point where they thought, this is because of us, because we've got skills. We, we know how to do this. We got the technique down. We can do this. We've done this. And then this boy comes with his father and they try to cast out this demon and the demon doesn't leave. And they get flustered. They get frustrated. They say, and they try again and he doesn't leave and they get more frustrated. And then they probably start getting heckled by the teachers of the law. You guys think you're such hot stuff. Well, how come it's not happening? What, what, so they get heckled and they get mad and they get embarrassed and ashamed and, in, and they forget about the father and the boy. They just turn to the teachers of law and they're just arguing. They're just arguing while the father and the boy are at the side, grieving, broken. They experienced the problem of presumption and pride. You see, when you start to think that you're bigger than you are, when you start to think that you can live life by yourself and your own strength and power and wisdom or technique, skill, any of that, you put yourself in a bad place. See, when you trust in yourself, that's all you've got to lean on. And when you lean on yourself, you fall. They leaned on themselves and they fell and then they got embarrassed and they tried to cover it up and they argue. They, they become self-absorbed. And they forget about this boy and his father really need love and care and compassion. And they forget that they actually aren't by themselves. There is a God they can cry out to. They even forget to cry out to God for help. They don't pray. When we don't pray, deep down it means one of several things. It means I don't think I need God's help because I've got this. I can do this by myself. Or it means I don't believe God can help me. They trust. They, they trust them. They, they, don't, they doubt the power of God, I should say. Or maybe it means maybe God could help me, but I don't think he wants to help me. Because I'm too sinful, I'm too broken. Why would God want to help somebody like me? So they have doubts about the goodness, the love, the mercy, the grace of God. When we don't pray, it means we have too much confidence in ourselves or not enough trust in God, his power or his character, his goodness. The disciples think, we know how to do this. We've got skills. We've done this before. No problem for us. And then they find out it actually is a problem for them. 
and they cover it up. The only honest person in this whole scene is the father who says, I am helpless, help me. Help us, have pity on us, help us. It's the only person who's honest in this scene. In effect, he's saying, I'm not faithful, I'm riddled with doubts, I can't muster the strength that I need. I don't have what it takes to, 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 to handle this, to deal with this, but help me, help me. That prayer, that phrase, help me, that's saving faith. Why? Because it's saying clearly, I don't have confidence in myself. I put my trust in you instead. Help me. Help me. That's the great prayer of faith. So what if your faith feels really, 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 really small? So, fu- so what if it feels really, really, really weak, barely there? Listen to the promise of Jesus. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 17 to our passage in Mark 9. They're talking, so Mark 9 and Matthew 17 are talking about the same situation. Transfiguration and then the, the healing of this boy possessed by a spirit. And the disciples in Mark 9 say, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. In Matthew 17, the disciples say, why can't we drive it out? And Jesus talks to them about faith. And he says this in verse 20 of Matthew 17. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say, Jesus does not say, if you have faith as big as a mountain, then you can tell this mountain to move. No. As small as a mustard seed, and it will move. The size of your faith just isn't important. It is important. It can be the size of a mustard seed. It can be so small that the only prayer you can pray is, help, help me. But when you pray that prayer, you pray that prayer to God who's big enough to help you. You pray, you bring that prayer, you you give, your, you give that prayer, you offer that prayer to the God of the universe. Besides, your faith isn't important. It's who you put your faith in. It's not how much faith you have. It's who you put your faith in. Prayer is the portal of faith. And it enables us to access the power of God. 
Prayer is the portal of faith. It enables us to access the power of God. Prayer both reveals our faith and nurtures and deepens our faith. Prayer connects our faith, small as it may be, with the only person who has the power, who has infinite power, the only person who has the power we need. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. It's the parable that's often called the parable of the persistent widow. It's a story about a widow who uh, needs justice. She's been, she's been uh, unjustly treated. She's been ripped off. So she goes to this judge and she says, give me justice against my adversary. And the judge, the judge is a crook. He doesn't care about her, so he's just, get lost, get lost, leave me alone. But she doesn't leave. She keeps following around, hounding him. Give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. And finally, in the parable, the judge says to himself, I don't care about God. I don't care about this woman. I don't care about justice. But she is driving me nuts. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing slightly. You know, I don't, but I'm going to give her what she wants because she's a, a thorn in my side. And so he gives her justice. And then Jesus says, how much more will God, who cares about justice, a God, how much more will he give you justice? How much more will he hear your cry when you call out to him? Now, this is the way Jesus opens and closes this story. He opens it by saying, and Jesus told them a parable so that they would pray, always pray, and not give up. So the reason he tells the parable is so, because he wants them to hear it, understand it, and pray and not give up. And then at the end of the parable, kind of as a commentary on it, Jesus says, but when the Son of Man returns... When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So in this parable, Luke 18, Jesus is linking prayer and faith. And he's saying it's only the people who pray and not give up who have faith that sustains them through all the evil and suffering and pain and sorrow of life. And in Mark 9 and Matthew 17, when you look at them together, again, you see this connection between prayer and faith. Faith and prayer. So what is this story about? It's about the struggle to have the kind of faith that overcomes our doubts, our fears, our unbelief. It's about turning to Jesus and holding on to him when you have no strength or power of your own. It's about trusting in Jesus instead of trusting in yourself. And the chief way you express that is by saying, Jesus, help me. Help me. So what do we do with our doubts? We do what the Father did. We just admit them. We don't just deny them. We get honest with them. When you feel doubt, don't deny it. You know, name it. Jesus, I'm scared. Jesus, I'm mad. Jesus, I don't want to forgive. Jesus, I can't feel you. 
Name it. Sit with it a little bit, but bring it to Jesus as you're sitting with it. Pray, don't give up. Don't give up. Faith isn't about having no doubts. It's about bringing your doubts to Jesus and asking him to help you believe. So pray, keep praying. Pray like this doubting father. Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, doubt may, feel, may leave you feeling like you're spitting into the wind when you pray. It may feel like you're just talking in the dark. But it doesn't matter whether you feel Jesus or not. He's there. He hears you. He hears you. There are times in our lives when when God just seems so close. You can reach out and touch him and feel him. There are other times in our lives where, like Mother Teresa, we experience a dark night of the soul where we can't feel or hear anything. It's like we're spiritually sensory deprived. But either way, Jesus is there and he hears the cry, Jesus, help me. Mother Teresa had a long, long, long night of the soul. But she persevered. She kept crying out, help me. And God used her to reveal his glory in ways none of, none of us can even imagine, actually. So who is Jesus? He is the God who is bigger than our doubts, stronger than our fears, present in our, peer, in our pain. He's the one who hears us and heals us in his time. He hears us, even when we can't feel or hear or touch him. And how do we follow him? We do what God said in the earlier part of chapter 9. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We listen to him through his word. And we do what Jesus said. We pray. We talk to him. And we trust in him, not in ourselves. Because small faith brought before our great God moves mountains. Now, we're about to celebrate communion together, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What is it that we remember and celebrate? On the mountain, when Jesus was transfigured, we see Jesus surrounded by God, surrounded by God. On the cross, he will be alone, 
abandoned, forsaken by his closest friends, surrounded by God on the top of the mountain, on the cross, forsaken by even those closest to him. On the mountain, we see the life Jesus had always led in the presence of his Father, embraced and and clothed with the glory, the light, the love of God. On the cross, we see Jesus alone and naked in the dark. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he put himself through that? Why did he leave the love of the Father to come and experience the evil and brokenness and betrayal of the cross? It's because he loves us. There are times when we feel God's love intensely powerfully and we rejoice and there are times when we feel like we're utterly alone that God has forsaken us and we wonder if God exists at all and if he cares about us at all and the proof that God loves us isn't in our feelings it's in the fact that the God of the universe took on human flesh and went to a cross to die on our behalf. The proof that God is with us and loves us and hears us is that he allowed his arms to be stretched out on the cross. That tells us that when we come to him, he will wrap those same arms around us and hold us. We are a people who are loved by God. Even when we can't feel it, we are loved by God. That's what we remember and celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We are a people loved by God, not forsaken, not left unloved, and raised up to live with him in all eternity.